Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another reading on uh, a Friday today, on the 4th of June. <laughs> it's not the 4th of June, it's 4 o'clock. My name is June. No, uh, sorry, I don't know what's got into me. Um, it's 4 o'clock, it's the 27th of August, is the true answer. And here we are again. It's a wet, miserable day here in Worthing. I hope um, we will cheer you up with a little bit of The Wisdom of the Fields by H.J. Massingham. And let's say a few hellos to everybody. Hello to people listening to the podcast and people listening after the event and to the people who are watching live as I record this. Hello, lovely Julia. Hello, John Willoughby. Uh, to John F., to TurboStream, to Linda Kane, looking forward to this, decided to watch rather than make tomato chutney. Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, Audrey Forbes um, saying hello there. Fire it. I shall be firing the SE shortly uh, in an hour's time. Uh, Ed Loud, who's good noony afters. And 4th of June, you've <laughs> been on the fizz. Is it the 28th? Oh, it's the 28th. Yeah, it's 28th today, not the 27th. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, must be something in the tea I've been drinking, I suspect. But anyway, yes, the 28th, because uh, tomorrow is my dad's birthday. He's no longer with us, but it would have been his birthday. Uh, he would have been 80-something, 86, I suppose, 86. Anyway, so let's continue with our reading. We are on uh, whatever chapter it was, chapter uh, chapter 7 or something. I uh, can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, here we go. Chapter 9, in fact, The Good Husbandman, part 3 of that chapter 9. My last example is of a very different kind of pioneering with a different aim. That aim was to make farming a paying proposition, the reverse of St Columbia's. Yet this tale links up in an odd way with that of its predecessor. One day I found myself talking with a farmer beside a field of oats in that crumpled, uneasy country which, from the East preface, 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 prefaces, prefaces, the serene scarp of the Oxfordshire Cotswolds at Enstone, he was telling me about the self-supporting communities of Cistercians in Ireland and Leicester, and how he had been struck by their virile health and the tenacity of life and vigour among the older monks. His mother, he said, had been ailing for many years, but since then she had come to live on his farm and eaten its produce. Part of this was whole wheat bread from his own corn, which in small quantities, larger ones would have been illegal, he had had to ground at the local grist mill. Mrs Henderson baked the flour herself. The wholeness of the living, the wholeness of living had made her hail, and two words come from the same root. The man I was talking to was Mr George Henderson of Oat Hill Farm. George Henderson of Oat Hill Farm. Oat Hill Farm is uh, he's going to tell me i'm sure this is uh, the george henderson of the farming ladder which i am reading upstairs just before i go to bed uh it's by my bed it's uh, it's a lovely a beautifully written book um not quite as beautifully written as hm massingham because this guy was a farmer who wrote a book afterwards 
Um, but it's, a, it's, it's so far, it's an enthralling story. And uh, I'm only near the beginning, and the, the chap is a young man at the beginning, telling how he did everything to try and get an education on learning farming and was surprised by how many lazy workers there were. Um, but he was desperate to learn more than he needed to. Anyway, uh, yeah, the man I was talking to was Mr George Henderson of Oak Hill Farm. That's why the name sort of struck in my head. Who has made farming history... Oh, here we go. Has made farming history by chronicling an experiment of 20 years on his 83-acre farm in the Farming Ladder. I reviewed the book. I had known the country for many years and now... I was seeing the farm. How how interesting is this? This is really interesting. Well, it is for me. Anyway, the association between Oat Hill Farm and the forgotten Cistercians seems very remote. At first sight, there appeared to be little enough connection between this farmer's enterprise and the religious vocation of an old agricultural monks or the educational arm of St Columbia's College that we read about in the last episode. The farm is as severely utilitarian as it well could be. The farmer himself, a modern, strictly concerned with how to make his acres pay their way in the world of efficiency and profits. For this has been criticised by an advocate of husbandry, who is a zealot on behalf of its cultural ex- uh, aspects. A sentence in the book, what a, mes- what a mistake it is to excuse efficiency on the grounds that farming is a way of life, would seem to lend colour to his attitude. When I had read the book and the criticism, I determined to see the farm for myself. I had an inward conviction that this criticism, though justified on the surface, had not gone beneath it. It's important to state why I had this conviction. I shall refer to the book which promises to become a classic of farming in the rank of Howard's Agricultural Testament, Michael Graham's Soil and Sense and Robert Elliott's The Clifton Park System of Farming, only as bearing upon this conviction. It's interesting that he should say that the book The Farming Ladder should go on to be a classic, and actually the version I've got is it was printed quite a number of times. The version I've got was the 8th edition, and so clearly there was something in that. Anybody can read the book for himself and see what Mr Henderson and his brother accomplished by intensity of production on a small mixed farm of which, in time, he and his brother became the freehold owners. It was not only derelict when he took it over, but suited, but situated on the shallow, brashy soil of the oolite limestone of the Cotswold uplands. He will read in you he will read in the book whoever reads it how he achieved the extraordinary feat of taking seven crops off one field in 4 years with the result that its fertility was higher at the end of the 4 years than at the beginning 
He did so by hard grazing, by repeated ploughings, by variety of cropping, by diversity and abundance of livestock, by five-course rotations, by the rule of return, and, so the conservation and economic usages of waste, by devoted labour and by taking thought, in fact, by good husbandry. And in his own words, the figure, a profit of £4,484 in 1942, clearly shows what may be achieved by having a thorough grasp of the underlining principle of successful farming, which I have laid down in this book, and which may be summarised in three words. Work, muck and thought. But when a farmer says the farmer's first duty is to his land and be prepared to take responsibility and do not bother how hard or how long you work, he is making such profits from husbandry by putting them second. Since the two brothers increased the output of the farm by 13 times what it was 20 years ago and its capital a hundredfold, the book is the most impressive vindication of the small farm yet written. No genuine farmer would doubt for a moment that the economy of the small farm, intensely cultivated, can beat, and always will beat, that of the large mechanised farm in output per acre. Statistics prove it. Mr Henderson proves it. He tells us in his book that during the worst years of the Between the Wars Depression, he was carrying three times the cattle, four times the sheep, ten times the pigs and twenty-five times the poultry than the figures given of per acre stocking by the agricultural returns for the whole country. Incidentally, he catches his workers young enough before they're corrupted by factory farming. For all his pupils are from schools, a further link here with the St Columbia School. They are trained on a profit-sharing basis. But the real point about them is that they represent a system of apprenticeship, today regarded out of date. But the imponderables, the values, the beauty, the continuity with the past were left out, and it is on this ground that the criticism I have referred to was directed against the book. My main reason for seeing the farm in person was my belief that the critic was more wrong than right. He did not consider in the first place that beauty has all but fled our island after inhabiting it for so many years. The conditions of its appearances and the common need and common use, and it can never be restored until this need and this utility are once more firmly based, until that is to say, the good thing in itself and its service takes precedence of the good thing that is made out of it. In the meantime, beauty comes second until husbandry is re-established as normal faith and practice of those who live by the land. Why has ugliness ousted beauty on English earth? The answer, I have no doubt, is because the earth itself is mishandled 
by generation that has by a generation that has completely lost touch with it until husbandry or loving management is restored as the guiding principle of all workers on and by the land we shall look for beauty in vain for beauty in nature and on the land in rural industry in building in every other transaction with earth proceeds from use and the lack of husbandry in modern farming is misuse from what i read in mr henderson's book i had gathered that this primary stipulation of a good thing coming before the good thing made out of it had to be fulfilled in spite of indications to the contrary but i was taking no chances i had to see the fulfillment in person and on the spot and when i first saw the farm it was obvious there were no flowers in his garden the chicken houses from which mr henderson folds his light sussex fowls over the land that they have so wonderfully enriched the piggeries the bartons the cattle pens and the jersey calves the paddocks of the clun and border lester sheep the electric wiring of the pastures the farmhouse it's itself was exactly what an attentive reader of the book would have expected its plain style and technical matter were embodied in a farm whose severity of realism had bolted out the graces but there are two meanings to the word plain the current sense and the one milton used in meaning of worth when maidens such a hester die what when maidens such a hester die their worth you cannot well supply not good at poems this farm was quakerish like charles lamb hester oh i see i saw I saw it in that sense partly because of my journey to it. I had come from Birdford by the Evenlode Valley through Witchford Forest. I had seen Witchford deforest on its steeper slopes in such a way that the sheer erosion is bound to follow. I had seen reeds joining across the stream and choking its looped and winding flow. I had seen the ammunition dumps everywhere and out in the woodlands like the new predator I had seen the ammunition dumps everywhere in and out of the woodlands like a new predator added to the british fist of list of fauna i had seen the aimless sub suburbanization of the little towns like charlbury that was once small jewels of stone set among the spacious uplands i had seen the limestone walls and buildings gaping with rubble and i had seen too crops of corn that would have excited a page of frowns from cobbit if what i saw at journey's end was plain enough it was so in a miltonic case sense milton milt miltonic sense it was what i saw before i realized i was on the farm road made by henderson brothers that was the key to the whole this was a field of oats it was by no means the first i had passed that day but it was so very different from all the others that i exclaimed aloud at it the field in comparison with the other crops of oats was like the church or manor house in a village of cottages or a lofty tree in a copse of underwood not only was the straw at least thrice as tall as they 
but the oat bells were more double in number. And the field had the indescribable look of perfect health, which corresponds with the patina of a stone. Cobbett's smile would have come out of his frowns, like the sun. There were no weeds level with the ears. The richness of the crop had smothered them. There was no patchiness. The crop was even throughout. It was the first thing I said to the farmer. Those oats of yours. I had my last words with him standing by them. They really were as important as I had surmised. One of the big stockless farmers in the neighbourhood who had come over to see Oak Hill Farm just before me, these farmers are now all big arable men, mass-producing by artificials, as they were doing to a lesser extent when they committed suicide or accepted bankruptcy in the 30s, said to Mr Henderson, I came to sneer and I go away to praise. The interesting thing was that the health abounding of this bumper crop had, it, had had its effect on Mr Henderson himself. In his book, he says, wise and thoughtful people in recent years have drawn attention to the misuse of artificial manures. In our experience, they do permanent harm if used in conjunction with farmyard manure and ploughed-in green crops. Excuse me, itchy nose. I've got to pause for a second to see what's going on in the uh, in the in the in the things. Uh, let's have a look. People be writing and reading. Um, Turbo stream got back after yesterday. Went to the hospital. Glad nothing amiss. Oh, good. Well done, uh, Lee Lawson. Hello. It's rice pudding in the oven today. That will warm the kitchen up. Sounds great. We, sh we shall be round. Uh, happy birthday, young Ed, for the morrow, says TurboStream. Is it your birthday, Ed? Happy birthday for tomorrow, um, which is good. Everyone's talking about that. Uh, my grandfather had dietary needs. That's interesting, but not really to me. Larry Hazelwood says, after this session, I'm heading out fishing to get some more stock for my stock pond. Oh, um, a lot of... Tilpia and catfish around here. Endless fishing spots. Marvellous. Stephen Agger. Hello, Richard. Hello, Stephen. And uh, Graham Roffey. Very wet here. There's a storm. Marvellous. Well, not marvellous. I mean, a shame. But you know what I mean. Continuing. The field of oats I saw had been dressed with liquid manure from a big tank by the pig house soaked into peat moss. He had another field on the farm, also down to oats, and for this he lacked enough of the peat humus and liquid manure to cover it. So he put a fertiliser on, and as he told me himself, could hardly believe the difference, what a difference there was between them at our time in, the, in our July meeting. The organically fed field beat its fellow out of all reckoning. If there is one certain if there is one thing certain about artificial manures, it is that crops dressed with them cannot stand up to drought. They wilt and scorch. But this oak crop had overcome the drought with tassels flying. He added that the only artificial manure he now used on the farm was superphosphate for the roots, not to feed 
but to speed them out of the ground in time for adequate cultivations on his limited acreage. He told me further one of the most significant things that I had ever heard. All around us were the big rolling fields of the more or less thousand-acre farmers wearing out their arable by the government policy of scrap your stock and grow corn. In the spring he had noticed that the land was blowing, the first visible sign of a dust bowl. There was not the humus in the soil to hold it, and its anchor was dragging. Mine was the only farm, he said, that is not blowing. Here was a parable of husbandry that needed no commentary. In the spacious big pig house, in the spacious pig house, the brothers had built of wood and asbestos with a in the spacious sorry in the spacious pig house the brothers had built of wood and asbestos with a wallboard lining for an even temperature and a hollow floor for warmth large whites were reclining in the domestic bliss and it i've read that wrong because i don't think it's written right but asbestos of course we couldn't do that now in the spacious pig house the brothers had built of wood and asbestos with a wa- with a wallboard lining for an even temperature and a hollow floor for warmth that's got i've got the measure of it now large whites were reclining in domestic bliss of increase of increase and multiply and multiply what does that mean large whites were reclining in the domestic bliss of increase and multiply i told him something of the ramp in pigswill another farmer had told me being a possessed processed product he did not believe in it and fed his pigs on whey from a cheese factory and potatoes from the fields in the neighboring farms in the neighboring farms i think he means in spite of the official discouragement of pig keeping this farmer by his inventive and organic methods could make 15 shillings a week per pig we inspected a noble champion jersey bill on the keeping of whom in good temper and fettle he had wise and humane views There were for instance two jersey calves next to the bull pen and he had maintained that their company sweetened his bullish his bullishness the calves were not quite the equal of those on ponoma farm ponoma ponoma farm the one we went to before where the touch is more intimate and the soil of course very much richer but for calves on this brash they were wonderful as the whole farm is so revolutionary having been the impact upon it of mixed livestock intensive husbandry organic nourishment and self-sufficiency as for the sheep mostly grass border lesters used as a herdled flock a breed that i know well i was so accustomed to seeing as a norm the subnormal sorry Uh, it's friday and i'm not reading terribly well i've read reasonably well this week but today for some reason it's we've got jump stagger stumble jump stagger stumble 
Jump Stagger Stumble were three men who lived underneath the brain of Phobes. When he couldn't read, they came out and laughed at him. Oh, sorry, that's not supposed to be there. As for the sheep, mostly grass border Leicesters, used as a hurdled flock, a breed I know well, I was so accustomed to seeing as a norm the subnormal members of it that they took me completely by surprise. But what took me even more so were the, were the light Sussex poultry, an old and so an all-round stock used here as in the past for folding, fattening, pullets and egg production. These folded, free-running and unspecialised birds in the poultry house, rival to the economy and the fertility of the whole farm, were so vital in themselves that they ceased to be reminiscence of depressed spinsters in seaside boarding houses. I hope you got something out of that sentence. Except that they were a great deal fatter than he. They looked as though the proud jungle cock had indeed been the paterfamilias of the varied tribe of domestic hens. I saw there was a cock among the troop, and the sight of him standing like a pasha, fresh from smitting in the infidels among his harem in the communal house, brought back to me something I'd long forgotten. And with that word, he flay, done, throw the beam... For it was day and elk his hen's ale, and with a chuck he gam hem for the cow, for he had found a corn lay in the yard. Real was he, he was nay more afraid, his fettered pertellot twenty time. And there's more of this, and I can't read it because I can't understand a bloody word he's saying. My feeling about the farm owned by the author of Farming Ladder, is one that neither he himself nor his appraisers have stressed. The impression the book gives is of a highly elaborate system of interdependent stocking and cropping, so intensely within a very limited area that a small farm can be made to pay much more handsomely than a larger one. Granted, but what seemed to me the point of about this system is that it is a root system. In seeing the farm, I was examining a root system and nothing how the root hairs, the fibres and the branches of the roots were building themselves down into the soil. It is, that is to say, bedrock farming. With extraordinary skill and acumen, with unwearing toil, the brothers had been working out the beginnings of a system of husbandry almost totally lacking from modern farming. They had been laying the foundations. The plant analogy is the truer because Oat Hill Farm has achieved unprecedented success by the organic development of the roots of agriculture in the soil. The Hendersons have been doing just what a sapling does when it is settling into the ground. We do, not expect, we do not expect flowers of saplings, neither should we expect the cultural graces, the rich overtones of an agriculture which is now by necessary concerned with the first rather than the second half of this significant disabel. Agriculture. 
Oh, I don't know whether you're understanding any of this. Our ancestors, by their pattern of life, unconsciously interpreted it in its fullest meaning. But before farming can become godly and cultural once more, as it was with the with the peasant and yeoman, the manorial village and the market town, it must once more become consciously organic. Factory farming will pass. It is by its nature predatory and by its results ephemeral. But Oat Hill Farm is based on a root system. When, it, when that becomes general again in, in England, as it is bound to become, the flower of culture will, as in the past, unfold upon its branches. Well, he's obviously... Um, it must be a long time coming then, because that's 80 years ago, and... Um, that's yeah. Sorry, that was a hard. That was just a. I don't know. That was a tough read. Um, so I think what he was saying is these guys. You know, they learnt from scratch. They weren't kids from farmers or anything. This Henderson, um, he he learnt all the way from scratch. He went on a year's to live on a farm, and he he learnt every single job on that farm. And any time he went anywhere, he would question and ask and question and ask. And at that particular time. Farms were going bankrupt and they weren't really making very much money and people weren't trying terribly hard because we were bringing in three, uh, two-thirds two of our food was coming in from overseas and it was before the war. But he wanted to make the farm successful and pay and he concentrated on the um, making everything work and earn money from it to... Um, to, to, you know, to increase the bottom line, as it were. But he learned through doing it that artificial uh, fertilisers was not the way and didn't do it, and that organic farming worked tremendously well but needed a lot of work, and he was on farm land that wasn't, when he first started, particularly good soil, and he put the effort into the soil. So that's why I think... He said that there was the criticism that there was not the niceties about this particular farm, that it was very utilitarian. It did what it was supposed to do. Everything worked and there was not a spare bit of land that did anything else. Um, I haven't read the book fully and so I don't know about the wildlife and stuff. But it was a book, I know, that it influenced a lot of people because they thought, golly, you know, we haven't worked our farms terribly well. No wonder we're not doing very well. And it was an inspiration to show that organic farming could do it. But the agricultural business and the chemical companies and the government didn't help because they then put in the subsidies to say, look, you don't need to do it that way. Do it with chemicals because you can enhance the soil, you can grow the crops quicker. And these guys at ICI, uh, who were the initial people who made the chemicals, will have a solution that will get rid of all the problems, the pests, and you can grow. Not realising, as we heard before, that the pests, like earthworms, are the saviours of the soil. So um, that's really what what I've got. That's what I've gleaned from all of that. Um, and glean is a good word because people used to go onto the fields after harvest, the gleaners, and they would be the, the peasant folks, the poor, who would glean and pick up what was left after the harvest. It's a great word. So when you say that's what I've gleaned from that, that's that's exactly the same thing. Um, 
Larry Hazelwood says, I've worked with the EPA. I don't know what the EPA stands for here in um, the US for many years. They're trying to force the removal of total phosphates in fertilizers. You have to have that plus nitrogen to be usable to plants. Um, so I'm still learning about this. I know that um, you need to have the nitrogen for plants and they need the phosphates, but isn't there a... So that's in artificial stuff, presumably. Um, but don't you need... But isn't there a way of doing this more organically? Uh, depressed spinsters in seaside boarding houses is the phrase he picked out. Ed Loud says, you stumble on, Richard. We wouldn't have it any other way. Well, I wish I, wish I could do it every day better. Um, there's far more character and interest with your reading than there is in what passes for most entertainment nowadays. You're, you're, you're too kind. Um, did, how much have I paid you to say that? And Larry says... Is the UK experience the same as us on this? Here they are, more concerned with algae blooms than growing food. Well, they're certainly more concerned with growing food for the supermarkets, but nobody talks about whether the food is actually good for you or not. It's just got to look right. It's got to come in on the deadlines. It's got to look right. It's got to be, you know, the right colours and everything. The taste is, is negligible and the nutrients and the minerals are not talked about. That's, that's never, you know, never a thing. Um, and I've just received my Riverford um, veg box. I made a video about it, which will go out on Sunday. And I do an unboxing and, and, and show you. And I know that Guy Watson, who's the, uh, the um, MD, if MD is such an old-fashioned term now, isn't it? Because there's this CO... COE, whatever the rubbish that is. Um, but anyway, the, the boss, the boss, he is so passionate about the soil. It all starts with the soil. He's so passionate about the soil that, that it's got to be right. It's organic. And it, he, yeah, he's, he is, uh, he's an amazing chap. Turbo says, uh, not sure. Um, I use pelleted chicken manure on my allotment and this year will top dress with homemade compost um, all our ancestors did it right the technology is going to do us in it, we're cutting corners you can't cut corners uh, Richard's reading sessions keep me motivated to keep me going into the garden oh well done I don't think earthworms were ever considered pests it's just that like bees says Lee Lawson they have suffered from the use of pesticides. Well, that's what I mean. You, you know, you, you're trying to kill off one little pest, but it's part of the food chain. And the earthworm, which um, is there to give you the humus, however it's pronounced, humus, humus. Um, Nitrogen-fixing legumes come to mind from school lessons. Yes, such as clover and legume and uh, well, yeah, legumes and clover. Clover is a good one. Earthworms aerate the soil. That's right. We we learnt all of this the other day. Um, and but it's not just aerate the soil. Um, I don't know whether you were there when we read the thing about the earthworms. How they take in the leaves and it passes through them and it turns it into such an, an amazing 
well the, into the into the the stuff that the humus is created from um anyway what do i know chapter x 10 in our, in our language a cornishman in wiltshire here is a quote from a herefordshire farmer live as though you were going to die tomorrow farm as though you were going to live forever yeah that quote we had earlier in the book bloody cheek it is significant that there was no sightseeing of our countryside before the 18th century men like Leyland Aubrey and Harrison were recorders and surveyors rather than appraisers of landscape the old builders were entirely indifferent to views and I remember only two references to them in Shakespeare Edgar describes Dover Cliff to his blinded father and Percy points out Berkeley Castle by yond tuft of trees. He must have seen it from the brow of Stinchcombe Hill, because that delorious castle is invisible from any other promontory of the Cotswold Edge. Yet the masons of our traditional cottages, farmsteads, manors and churches were unerring in their power, of sitting a house, sighting a house in perfect relation to its particular green environment, an art now lost. Telling me that's an art now lost. Shakespeare refrained from describing landscape, and yet he was one of the most deeply versed of our ruralists. But in the late 18th century, there were plenty of sightseers. The Reverend W. Gilpin heading the list with his genteel aesthetics of the picturesque. Ever since his day, the art of appreciating landscape for its own sake has been cultivated by a people becoming more and more urbanised. Culture has been pulled out by the roots from its native soil. Thus, there is a double paradox. When our civilization was genuinely rural... Articulate sightseeing was unknown. As soon as it became urban, views became a fashion. The true explanation of this lies with Gilpin. The whole point of the picturesque is that it is disassociated from utility, and that was how the subsequent sightseers viewed their views. The new townsman regarded the countryside as a picture detached from itself because it had nothing to do either with making it or using it. Wordsworth, Emily Bronte, Constable and nearly all the watercolourists were reacting against this view of views because they saw landscape as interaction between man and nature, or rather the Englishman and his native land. With the discovery of geology, this organic sense was partially reinstated. The rock finder did not see landscape merely as a composition, but as the consequences, both in contour and vegetation, of the Earth's history, movements and constitution, 
but there was no fusion nor even contact between the picturesque and the scientific attitudes. The growing separatism of the age was all against it. The unifying link is in husbandry and that alone. Only when the geological, the aesthetic and the agricultural approaches to landscape cohere can the country be seen in its full and true values. This wholeness is the key to the understanding of country as of all life. I have experienced it. Years ago, I was fairly familiar with the majestic and luxurious landscape of Wiltshire because I'd studied it as an expression of its geological framework. That structure, at any rate in the chalk regions, which cover two-thirds of the county, is simple and so rich in contrasts. The austerity of the downland contours frames the softness of the river valleys and of the master valley of the green sand called the Vale of Pusey, dividing the Marlborough Downs from Salisbury Plain. Tertiary beds overlie the chalk, as in all the downland counties, notably the Savernake, Groveley and Great Ridge and the Carln woodlands. But they do so less confusingly than in Hampshire and Dorset, whither the great core of the Wiltshire Massive fans out into the long, continuous ridges. Our Neolithic, Bronze Age and Iron Age ancestors populated the plateau, crests and headlands of a downland open to the sky, and the Romans merely passed through the county to and from their road junctions at Sorbidonium and Cunitio. But the Saxons and all who came after them dug themselves in deep along the narrow and variable valleys. There they met the memorials of their prehistoric forerunners along the lower slopes of the chalk scarp. Only a few villages like Hindon and Avebury disturbed the busted cruising along the green swells of this upland Atlantic. So, the Wiltshire Downs, parcelled between uplands and lowlands in space, were occupied by highlanders and lowlanders as in, a, in, in as sharp a division of time, each adapting themselves to their respective spheres of habitation, remodelled them by making use of the materials they found at their feet. Even Salisbury Spire, the linchpin to the spokes of the five rivers that meet under it, was built in the local Chilmark stone. The human imprint, historic and prehistoric, played a similar part in the refashioning of the downland as denudation, forest, water and vegetation did in chiselling, softening and colouring the primal mass that rose from the sea. In this way, I formed a picture in my mind in which wind, weather, rock, plant, beast and man had one and all cooperated in compositing the unity of the Wiltshire scene. When I revisited it, I was bent upon a different business, a utilitarian one of adjusting... of assist, Sorry, when I revisited it, I was bent upon a different business, the utilitarian one of assisting in judging competitors in the building and thatching of 
flax ricks. The contest was put into motion for the sake of reviving a jewel craft in which earlier generations were masters. We are but bungling amateurs, painfully learning how to progress backwards. We are trying to bridge the great gaps in continuity of workmanship torn by the Industrial Revolution and the series of Great Depressions in agriculture, not because we want to, but because we have to. Since its revival, flax is grown in Wiltshire over widely scattered areas, and the first and second prizes went to stacks as far apart as Badminton in the heel of the Cotswolds and Winter Slow in the south near Figsbury Rings. Of the dozens we saw, not even the best were more than workmanlike, and the worst were makeshift indeed. Combination of all the good qualities and the fine points that go to make a first-rate stack hardly ever occurred. These are good footings or beds for the proper preserv- sorry, these are good footings or beds for the proper pers- preservation of the straw, well-sprung stems with projecting eaves and angles for the walls sloping inwards so that the rain dripping from the eaves should fall clear of the straw. Not only neat, but close thatching with a clearly defined ridge board, but with the spricks and pins well staggered and not pointing too far downwards, and lastly, properly shaping the structure and packing of the sheaves or beats. Only one of the ricks had used only one of the ricks had used wet combed reed straw, and this was partly the reason why it gained second prize. As I travelled from rick to rick, I was seeing the country not face-to-face as a deliberate sightseer, but out of the trail of my eye. The landscape became, as it were, a by-product of the job in hand, as the ricks themselves were quite literally a by-product of the landscape. I count myself as well acquainted with Wiltshire as any man whose qualifications for knowledge are not residential. But I began finding out things in days which previously I'd missed in years of observation as my sole business. How came it that I had not noticed the classical regularity of that watershed dividing the Nadder and the Ebel Valleys, over which came from Harnham Hill to Whitesheet Hill? What? How? Sorry. How came it that I had not noticed the classic regularity of that watershed dividing the Nadder and the Ebel Valleys, over which, from Hardham Hill to Whitesheet, runs the old coach road that was once a Bronze Age droveway. The headlands form the perfect echelon for the whole distance, like a zigzag of a Norman moulding over the Tripamphium. Tripanium of a porch or a chancel arch. This is by no means casual booty for the eye. It illustrates a principle characteristic of chalk downs, namely the tendency to repetition of like forms, of which this range is a grand exemplar. Then again, how could I have failed to take in the reed thatching, particularly of the Upper Avon and the Wiley Valleys, with a technique very similar to that of the Norfolk reed thatching. This, too, was significant. Wiltshire is the only 
county of the Chalk that is well watered. Its natives have evolved independently of Norfolk style with its chevroned ridge board, another regional style kindred to it. There stands the river reeds at the back or the front door of its cottages and steadings. Not sure where we're going with this personally, but hey-ho, let's carry on. The richness and variety of the regional building that I had gathered from previous... Sorry, the richness and variety of the regional building I had gathered from previous explorations. Downland Wiltshire, with its flint and brick and the half-dozen more building stones, Clunch, Sarsen, Sandstone, Pudding Stone and Chilmark Stone, experimented in combining them. Her position as the nodal boss of all the Cretaceous ranges in England was the architectural master influence in chalk of all her neighbours, yet I had not grasped the full extent of the intimate divergences in technique between valley and valley, yet all within the provincial idiom. The differences in nature between the flow and the courses and the vegetation of the five rivers had been most sensitively translated into into architectural differences. Here was the glory of English building before the standardisation of the Industrial Revolution. The more obediently the Masons accepted the limitations of their sites, the richer in character, variety and individuality of their buildings. Each valley had its own preceding genius of landscape, each its separate way of manipulating the rock that underlay it, yet the chalk conditioned yet the chalk conditioned a common family likeness between them all. Thus my journeys for a particular purpose, which had nothing ostensibly to do with landscape, that flooded that known scene with a new light. And I am inclined to think that they also illuminate the universal principle with which contemporary life is completely out of touch. The purpose and happiness of beauty, of self-expression for, the, for their own sakes, always ends in defeat because it violates this principle. They are all emanations from something else and come unbidden and unsought according to the zeal and power devoted to that something else. In other words, the only way of appreciating the landscape at its total values is when seen in organic relation to man's life upon and with the earth. The aesthetic sense, some knowledge of the earth's history and other qualities, are indispensable adjuncts. But they're only adjuncts. The true way to know the earth as a whole is to be in partnership with it. So Wordsworth saw it when he in, so Wordsworth saw it when he interweaved landscape with human life. This more directly still, this more directly still was how Cobbett saw it. So I, plodding far in their rear, hope to show it in its biography of a Cornishman. In Wiltshire, so uh, that chapter, that first bit is um, sort of a, a, a very hard thing. That was um, basically you can't. I think what he was saying, if I'm if I've got that right, you can't just look 
at the beauty from a technical point of view. I think he was saying that, you know, you can look at it like that, but it's fairly meaningless because it's it's you're giving it an artificial term to say it's technically beautiful because the geology is like this and this happens and this happens. Whereas it's it's more beautiful when you're noticing it by not studying it. It's like, I think, I think that's what he was getting at. I found that quite not only difficult to read, but difficult to interpret. But anyway, um, I think he moves on from that heavy uh, thing about landscape and gets back to farming in the next next bit. But we will leave that until Monday uh, because we are at 1651. So sorry about uh, today's reading. And uh, it's sort of been a bit uh, not as uh, not as emotionally stirring as uh, the last couple of episodes. But, um, you know, can't all be like that. So there we go. Uh, nitrogen fixing legumes. Uh, yes, says uh, Linda Kane. Turbo, don't let your lettuce seeds blow away. The culture vultures are pulling up the roots. Uh, I am Graham. Broad beans, parsnip. Lettuce, very easy to mature. Just reading out these things. Uh, learning how to pronounce progress backwards. Now, that is a brilliant phase. Dare I say... There's almost a juxtaposition there. Well, it's certainly what we should be doing is learning how to progress backwards because I feel that um, we have gone down a... Um, what, like on a railway where you go down a, a dead-end route, a path that goes nowhere, and you realise, oh, actually, we need to go back to get back on the forward path. I feel like we've gone down a sub... You know, what do they call it? Uh, an arm that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, have you started building your garden behind your house yet, Richard? No, give us a chance. I need to, A, I need to get some money in. And B, I'm making videos every day. And also, we've had some rain. so And I've got to clear stuff away. And uh, I've got to think whether this is actually what I'm going to do. Um, because when I made the idea, about a billion people came out um, from the woodwork and said you'd need planning permission. Siding, yes, siding, down a siding. You read it well nonetheless. Thank you very much. I staggered through it. I hope people um, got some of that. Monday will be good because... Um, oh, yes, now... Uh, there may be, over the next couple of weeks, some um, halts in the reading, unfortunately. Look, we're we're very close to the end now. We are... Gosh, we are a fifth to go. A fifth. A fifth to go. Uh, nothing on the house. No, nope, still waiting. They're doing their searches and stuff. Um, and uh, we've, we're we trying to ensure the house as one of the things that we said that we would do so that they would, you know, continue with their whatever, raising the money to buy the house, the people who want to buy it. Um, yeah, so next week, uh, I, I think Mark English is coming down on Tuesday which will be great, but I hope to be back here for four o'clock. And Wednesday, I should be away all day. I'm going to Landport in Wiltshire, funnily enough, with uh, Julian Humphreys from the Battlefield Trust to do a walk around a battlefield and film it, unless the weather is atrocious. Um, and then I think the week after, I'm is it the week after or the week after that, going to Wales again to try and get this interview with Patrick... 
um, Holden from the Sustainable Food Trust and possibly go and visit uh, Fran and Rich if they're around on floating our boat. So next few days. And then thereafter, uh, at the end of that, beginning of October, Julia and I will be on a canal boat. But hopefully we can uh, get to the end of this book and then see where we go. Anyway, thank you very much. I've got to go and light the essie now so um, and think of something to cook. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Sorry about the poor reading, but hopefully that's just, you know, a little tired stumble, end of the week and what have you. And we'll be back again next time. Take care. Have a good weekend. The Vogue Show tonight with the lovely Julia is on at 8 o'clock on the Vogue Show channel. And uh, I have a video for tomorrow and I have a video already lined up for Sunday. So uh, whew, I've been uh, I've got ahead of myself. In the meantime, have a good one. Uh, goodbye for now. Bye bye.